0: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, and welcome to Season 2 of the Logical Christian Podcast. I'm your Logical Christian, Dan Irwin. Welcome to those who are here for the first time, and a hearty welcome back to the LCP Faithful. What we do here is look at what the mainstream media feels is important to tell us about current events, politics, science, religion, and just about anything else, but we're not interested in their spin. We want to look at these stories logically, and we especially want to look at these stories as Christians. Links can be found in the show notes if you'd like to follow along. So with that, let's go be logical Christians. Solomon in the book of Ecclesiastes, in addition to quoting, you know, that song by the birds, said that there is nothing new under the sun. Quote, What has been will be again. What has been done will be done again. There is nothing new under the sun. American philosopher George Santayana stated, quote, "...those who cannot remember the past are condemned to repeat it." The connotations of both of these are, are negative for a reason. On today's episode, first we're going to drive our way to the new past, then we're going to learn from the past what exactly we're driving toward— So, everybody, make sure you go potty before we leave and get ready to take some notes. Now, hurry up and get in. Here we go. What a time to be alive. We live in an era not unlike the Jetsons, minus the flying cars and robots and pills that turn into food and all that other stuff, of course. But, my friends, the future is now. I know there may be a a few things that aren't perfect right now. Scant few minor things like... No baby food, an impending world war, crippling dead and degenerate men dressed as ugly women shaking their junk in the faces of kids, kids that are being pressured by adults to be something they aren't, drugs that eat your flesh and turn you into some sort of zombie, or drugs that just kill you on contact coming across the border by the truckload, nearly everything except one thing causing strokes, clots, and heart attacks, and people saying mean things and feeling like people are saying mean things, balloons. But despite these few minor details, the world is finally doing the right things. That People are finally being forced into pretending the climate is a thing that man should worry about and can do something about. I mean, look at the electric everything, the self-driving, well, sort of, cars, the nearly limitless power of the sun and the wind. And now, now, my friends, found on DailyMail.co.uk, headline... Ford patents self-driving car that repossesses itself if the owner fails to keep up with payments and drives itself back to the showroom or scrapyard. I mean, now we don't even have to worry about having to go out and yell and threaten the tow truck guy and grab onto the bumper of the car and refuse to let go. Nope, now we can just yell at our car as it drives off into the sunset. Shane, come back, Shane. So apparently Ford has been awarded a patent that would allow a car to autonomously drive itself away from the home of a deadbeat and make its own decision where it needs to go. If the miles are low enough, it would drive itself back to the dealer. If it has high miles, it would drive itself to the wrecking yard. Don't worry, though. Ford isn't an animal. They wouldn't just take the car back if you miss a payment. No, 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 no. They'd try to contact you first, you know, like normal. Then they'd, quote, start the process by disabling comfort features, playing noises inside the car and limiting where the vehicle can drive. So the features they disable would be things like air conditioning or the media player. The sounds would be chiming or buzzing, something annoying while the car is on. And then they'd move to only allowing usage of the car at certain times or on certain days. Now, I gotta be honest, playing noises inside the car, I mean, that sounds hilarious to me. The part about limiting where or when the vehicle can drive, well, that sounds a little bit more, oh, I don't know, what's the word, Nazi-esque to me. But if the messages go unanswered, the annoyances don't work, well, as a last resort, Ford will just uh, recall the car, with the high mileage cars heading to the recycling plant, allegedly. Now, I'll be honest, I kind of like this idea. I, I really do, but I, but I kind of hate the idea also. <laughs> However, the reality is that as Proverbs says, quote, the borrower is the slave to the lender. If you're beholden to someone else, you're also under obligation to that someone else. If I want my paycheck, I need to come to work and work the hours they require. I need to do the things they want. I need to have the attitude they accept, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. If I don't do those things, well, they'll give me the opportunity to to find someone else to pay me. If I don't want to do those things, I'll go look on my own. The same kind of relationship should exist with government assistance. If you're relying on someone else to pay your bills, then you should have to follow their rules. And if you're borrowing money to purchase something, you are the slave to the lender the article goes on to state that starting in 2022 as covid stimulus payments started drying up as biden's inflation started uh, you know to skyrocket and people were buying and borrowing like crazy well eventually you have to pay the piper unless of course you're a borrower of student loans then your vote for democrat is more important than you paying you know your obligation apparently nbc reported that from 2019 to today the average monthly car payment has increased 26% to $718 per month. $718 per month for a vehicle. That used to be like a typical mortgage payment, give or take. They further said about 17% of people are paying more than $1,000 a month. And that is more than my mortgage payment currently. And I've got a house that's... I mean, admittedly too large, although I'm in West Virginia, so our prices aren't as out of control as other parts of the country. But still, $1,000 a month for a vehicle, my first car cost me $350, and that was around the end of 1991, if I remember correctly, accounting for inflation, that's the same as about $760 today. $1,000 per month? That just kind of, oh, I don't know, seems insane. Okay. So honestly, I really legitimately cannot be mad at this patent. It actually makes a ton of sense. I kind of like it, but I kind of hate it. Like I said, my initial questions would be, how do they make sure there isn't anyone in the car? And what if people have personal belongings in the vehicle? But although this could be done with a gas powered vehicle, let's be honest, this would be an electric vehicle almost guaranteed. So they couldn't just crush it. I mean, it would have to be dismantled and that huge battery would have to be massively processed in order to recycle it or uh, store it for a billion years. So they'd have time to contact the bum and tell him to get his garbage out of his ex-car. But Dan, you say, to which I say, that's Mr. Irwin Esquire to you. Uh, What possible reason, you continue ignoring my demands, could you have to hate this? To which I respond, a little annoyed because you ignored my naming demands, who do you think you are limiting me to just one reason? Now, first, like I said, this could be done with a fossil fuel vehicle, but we know that this will be done with an electric car. Now, I say that if you want to own an electric vehicle, go right ahead. It's up to you. I say that, but I'll admit when I see someone in an EV, I have the same visceral reaction as when I see someone wearing a mask. And the reason is the same. You're either unbendingly agenda driven, you know, (laughs) blue no matter who, baby, or you're willingly unthinking, refusing to do any actual work on your own, just content to do as you're told by your government and media overlords. Or you actually believe you're doing something, in which case I literally feel sorry for you. This I attribute mostly to elderly people as they're less likely to have computers and smartphones and less likely to know how to combat the garbage they're being fed on a daily basis. Now, I fully admit that the EV can work for a small percentage of the population. For others, it can be a toy, if you get a good one at least. But my default reaction is just one of sheer disgust. I'm sorry. I know it shouldn't be this way. But if you think you're stopping a virus with a mask, or if you're suddenly Captain Planet because you're driving an EV, I mean, wow. I mean, just, just wow. Now, beyond that, which I'll admit, that's more probably my problem to deal with, I need to just look past these people, let it go, and let them be who they are. Does anyone else feel that this could turn into a larger problem, though? Maybe? I mean, surely it can't just be me, like right now, and... For quite some time, since the inception of OnStar, vehicle manufacturers have had the ability to remotely track your movements and disable your car if they want. Now, there were ethical and legal hurdles that had to be, I guess, hurdled before tracking data or ignition disablement could ever take place. Basically, a warrant would have to be issued that would force the manufacturer of the vehicle to shut it down and track it. And remember, OnStar came out in 1996, so... Nearly 30 years ago already. And that was made possible because we had computers in our cars now. So when did those come into play? Well, from what I can find, a Volkswagen Type 3 had the first printed circuit board of any car in 1968. Now, this was pretty rudimentary, but Ford in 1978 came out with a Lincoln that had some computerization. And then by the early 80s, most manufacturers were computerizing at least some of the systems that used to be all mechanical. So in about 15 years, we went from mechanical vehicles to computerized to OnStar. Now, I found an article on CompassVSC.com, but this was all over. I I really don't know who the originator was. I don't know. Maybe it was them. And it was from 2022. It said, a modern average car today has 30 to 50 different computers, possibly up to 100 in the high-end cars, with 60 to 100 electronic sensors, 1,400 semiconductors, and more than 3,000 microchips. And I'm a tech guy. I love all or at least most of the technological innovations we find in cars. But the reality is these are making us worse drivers, Uh, much worse drivers. I mean, we don't have to check our lane. We don't have to check our blind spot. We don't have to touch the gas pedal thanks to adaptive cruise control. We don't have to turn around to look behind us anymore. We don't have to learn how to stop in snow or ice or get going in snow or ice thanks to analog brakes and adaptive all-wheel drive and traction control. We don't have to worry about being distracted with lane assist. We don't even have to remember to release our parking brake. The car will take care of that, too. Now, you may like these things. Admittedly, I like some of these things. Some of them I turn off as quickly as I can. I also like to drive. But what else comes with this mass of computerization? Well, in 2021, a few articles came out saying that car hacking is closer than you think. And similar nonsense headlines. But do you remember in 2015, the hacker experiment that was done with someone driving a Jeep down the freeway? Now, this was done to Andy Greenberg, a senior writer with Wired in a 2014 stock Jeep by a couple of security expert hacker guys. In 2015, eight years ago now, they hacked into this Jeep, played with the climate control then cranked the radio up to full volume while changing the stations, and then they kicked the wipers on and the wiper fluid was generously applied. Then they electronically shifted the transmission into neutral, making the throttle unresponsive and the Jeep just lost speed on the freeway. Now This was done over the internet, with his hackers about 10 miles away at their home on a laptop 8 years ago. But these were known hackers. They cracked into the systems, played with what they could. This was planned. And although the exact hacks were a surprise to the driver, the driver slash knew that things were going to happen. Now, what happens when a hacker takes over your car and you're not expecting it? What happens if the next hackers are the manufacturers that have the code that know exactly what every single thing will do when turned on or off? Well, isn't that what Ford just patented? Turn off the climate control, disable the radio, cause annoying noises to be played, or disabling your car altogether, or limiting destinations it's allowed to take you to, or times it's allowed to move. This is when it starts to get a little more frightening if you think about it, which is what you're supposed to be doing, you know, the thinking thing. Now today, we're starting to play with car subscriptions, not a car lease. I don't know. You've bought the car. It's yours, either with a loan or purchased outright. It's your car for all intents and purposes, but various car manufacturers are now able to turn features on and off over the wireless world. However, they choose to do it. I don't, doesn't really matter to call it over the air, right? And it's based on a monthly subscription at the level that you would like to pay. So back to OnStar, you'd get that free for a time, but then it would be disabled if you didn't want to pay for it. Same with satellite radio. This is really no different than the various subs that we have in everyday life, right? Subscriptions to Netflix or Disney Plus or myriad other services. But now, an increasing number of features that we'd normally tick boxes for as we designed the car that we were going to order, you know, in the way distant past. Well, those features are already inside your car. They're already available. You just need to pay for them to be unlocked or pay the monthly fee to keep them unlocked. think GPS or Wi-Fi connectivity, specialized lighting features like cornering lights or turning lights or auto-dim headlights, even some of those funky chasing LED light features. What about remote start and camera systems and remote locking and unlocking vehicle locators? Mercedes is apparently charging you to get and keep the slight rear steering feature in their EQS EV and the upgraded Vroom sound to help you pretend like you're driving a real car, not a remote control toy. Some manufacturers are starting to figure out pricing tiers for autonomous driving capabilities and, and many more subscription type items. The article I used to get a nice list of these pay-to-play features was found on CarBuzz.com, link in the notes, and nearly every car mentioned was, surprise, an electric vehicle. Additionally, I believe Tesla, and and probably others, are working on pay subscriptions to unlock increased performance, greater acceleration, etc., etc. Remember, the push is to electric vehicles. Electric vehicles, by their very nature and because of the ever-increasing connected world we live in, have more advanced computers, more connectivity, more everything. And with more computerized vehicles, the ability to program all of the possible features, but only unlock what's been paid for, is becoming more and more available. But what can be unlocked can also be locked. Now, as I said a few minutes ago, disabling the car in some way is illegal and even very difficult to do with a warrant, but not impossible. What happens when the list of crimes now includes crimes against humanity, crimes against the social order, crimes against the accepted government narrative, crimes against the planet? Let me ask you a hypothetical. Let's say, I don't know, let's say we lived in the future, a future where we still have cars, but we've been mandated to use electric vehicles. Let's say a a COVID-esque novel virus was created spontaneously evolved and was released, found its way into the world. Let's further say that our benevolent leaders, we love the leaders, just so happened to synthesize a chemical... They choose to call a vaccine, despite it not being one by any stretch of the imagination, and they mandate that everyone gets that shot and the follow-up and the booster and also the booster and the booster, ignoring the heaps of evidence that, uh, you know, something's wrong here. Now, remember, this is just purely hypothetical. What if you refuse, or as we used to call it in the before times, declined per your freedom to choose? Well, you're not a very good social butterfly now, are you? Maybe you don't need to go certain places, or maybe you don't need to go any place at all. Maybe you need to have screeching sounds play inside your car, like Jim Carrey did in Dumb and Dumber, until you get that injection. Hmm? Now I know, that could never happen, right? (laughs) But what if it did? If you listen to me for any amount of time, you've heard me rant about EVs in the past, you've heard me go through the literal impossibility that this country, speaking of America here, could actually support a large percentage of charging EVs and electric everything on our existing grid, and keep in mind, the government is currently paying power companies to take fossil fuel electric plants offline and demo them as fast as they can so the grid isn't getting any better. Now, you know that the end game isn't a happy planet at the perfect temperature that the infamous faceless they have deemed to be the current temperature. For some reason, you know that the end game is money, power, and control. Always has been. And further, you know that one of the goals is to lock us into communes or pods or work centers, maybe I'd call it. Traveling the open roads must necessarily be a thing of the past, a a relic of a forgotten bygone era. In fact, at the end of 2022, news came out of a climate lockdown in Oxfordshire, England, where residents would be confined to their neighborhoods, requiring the granting of permission by their overlords in order to leave. That the residents would be allowed a certain amount of vehicle usage per week or per month, and, and after that you know, they would face stiff penalties. Now, as the fascist dictatorial left always does, they utilize the media to harumph and guffaw at we silly right-wing conspiracy theorists for saying such silly things after news broke because they'd never think of of doing that. That's, That's just crazy talk. But let's just for the heck of it say that they aren't kidding and that we all had EVs. Well, couldn't they monitor and control your travels and your Total allotted distance traveled, your charging time or charging amount, and when you've reached your designated limit, well, I'm sorry, but you're done. Now, what if you're not being a good social justice warrior? What if you made a joke? What if you spoke out against the leaders? We love the leaders. What if you smoked a cigarette or implied that there were I don't know, possibly, maybe, Only two genders expressed a belief in some magical sky god that wouldn't be very happy with what's going on down here. I mean, what would happen then? When another entity can turn things on, they can shut them off. When you have over-the-air connectivity 24-7, you have 24-7 monitoring and, if necessary, 24-7 correction. Just the other day, it was discovered that Apple has added clean energy charging, they call it, to the features coming to the latest iOS update. I would suggest you check your iPhone if you sadly own one. My child checked hers, and sure enough, there it was. But what is this? Well, I mean, it means that maybe you don't need that phone to, you know, to fast charge. Or really even slow charge? And and how many of us really need our phones to charge past 80%? No, no, no. Apple's new clean energy charging feature only allows the iPhone to charge at full speed when lower emission electricity is available in an effort to lessen the carbon footprint of iPhone charging. See, we need to save the planet. And how dare you charge your phone at times that could harm the planet more? Now, all of these things I'm talking about fall under the new ESG rules that are being pushed into our society. Just like China started with a social credit score, how good and compliant of a citizen are you? This is a global initiative. This is being pushed by the likes of the World Economic Forum, and this forces the hands of big business, banking, manufacturing, and individuals, giving all of us a a good citizen credit score, encompassing our E, environmental, S, social, and G, governance compliance with what we're told to do. The Senate actually pushed back and voted down Biden's push to get ESG scoring into our 401ks, forcing investment brokers to comply with the new ESG rules when choosing who to invest your money in this is purely manipulation it's pure evil and frankly it's pure stupidity mostly the evil one though a number of states are also pushing back on one or more of the letters of the acronym with regard to various institutions it's coming into the light and it needs to be destroyed look into esg you'll be uh, you'll just be horrified i included a link from the blaze in the notes to to get you started now this is simply stated tyranny by legislation, or scarcity and oppression by fiat. I realize that elections have consequences, but did anyone ask you if you want to be forced into electric vehicles? Did anyone ask you if you wanted vehicle subscriptions? Did anyone ask for near-future imposed limitations on our abilities, our freedoms, our liberties? The reality, as conspiratorial as it may sound, as many eye-rolls as it may get, you've got to admit that you and I, You know, the average everyday schmuck just living our lives, doing our thing, making ends meet, working our jobs, spending time with family, going to church. We, the engine of this country, the wage earners, the taxpayers, we're viewed as nothing but plebs, minions, expendable slaves of the state. But this isn't what we'd normally think of as slavery. See, we're all very familiar with the slavery in early American history. We should all know that right now... There's more slavery in the world and in America than at any other time in history. This, of course, is speaking of sexual slavery. And it's all colors and all ethnicities and both genders. It's young and old, so it doesn't really count. Not really. It's not the right kind of slavery. It it just doesn't grab the headlines the same. And it definitely doesn't fit an agenda. It doesn't garner the clicks and likes. So we, we just kind of ignore that. Now, from very early in our creation, slavery to some degree was a thing. We know that Abraham had a slave woman who gave birth to Ishmael, as well as other slaves and servants. We know that Job had servants. We know that the nation of Israel was in brutal slavery in Egypt. That was less than a thousand years after the flood. And we don't know what went on before the flood. These three examples are translated from different Hebrew nouns, but they all mean the same thing. Slave or servant, bond servant. We also know that at various times, people groups were conquered and taken into slavery. But when you look at the laws given to Moses by God, there were rules of conduct and treatment for slaves. Slavery under God's law was not what slavery was or is in America and many other nations of the modern era. And now, this slow and steady push to lock us down, limit our mobility, impose shortages of food, energy, pretty much everything the push to remove the logical and normalize the illogical, the psychological manipulation in every aspect of life, we are being enslaved by the very people who were placed into office through our freedom to vote who are supposed to protect and defend all of the things that are being taken away from us. For no reason other than our elected slave masters desire total control over us. We were not meant to live as slaves. Or were we? Well, I mean, sort of. Yeah, we kind of were. I mean, unfortunately, our federal head, Adam, took that bite of whatever fruit that was, and from that moment on, we are all slaves to sin, every one of us. Now, I know that depending on the flavor of Protestant you are, you may think that you still have a spark of something good in you that will allow you to noodle your way through the sinful muck in order to reach out and grab onto Jesus. I mean, it's not according to the Bible, but I know that some believe that. The reality is that Jesus tells us, "...truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin." And Paul said in Romans, "...do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness." But even slaves can look for the chance to run, to escape, right? But we learn in Ephesians, and you were dead in your trespasses and sins. Hard to run when you're dead. We're basically the walking dead right now. We're zombies, if you will, and our master is sin, the devil. What we're seeing is man playing out Satan's desires. Sinful, evil man, and make no mistake, those that are plotting the enslavement of humanity are evil individuals. They're doing nothing but following their master. They believe themselves to be at the top of the stack, king of the hill, but they're as hell bound as those at the bottom, as Satan himself. Now, although Peter is talking about false prophets here, false teachers, in Second Peter 2, he says what could be applied to the majority of our leaders around the world today. For speaking loud boasts of folly, they entice by sensual passions of the flesh those who are barely escaping from those who live in error. They promise them freedom, but they themselves are slaves of corruption. For whatever overcomes a person, to that he is enslaved." See, we are being promised clean water and bright skies and perfect temperatures, peace and tranquility, unending health, immortality even. But what we're being told is lies. They know it. You and I know it. But there's a large percentage of people that are going to be shocked and either angry or deep in denial when the truth comes out, assuming it ever does. Now, I don't know what the future holds for electric vehicles or imposed shortages or any of the various forms of democratically mandated slavery, but I do know this, the one kind of slavery we should be most worried about is slavery to sin. But there is a different form of slavery. Nearly every location in the New Testament that the apostles and various others wrote, the word servant, as in James, a servant of God, or Paul, a servant of God, is the Greek word doulos, Although many translations use the word servant or bondservant for the word doulos, the meaning is really simply slave, James, a slave of God. But we don't end there. For those that are saved, for those who God opened their eyes and regenerated their hearts, we move from a slave to sin to a slave to God. To, as Romans 8 tells us, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. See, Paul in Galatians cautions us, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. We move from slave to slave to adopted child, to fully a child of God, a co-heir with Christ, a brother or sister of Jesus, a full son or daughter of God with all the benefits of that position. Now, I fully believe that we should fight back against the man in post-slavery, whether it's slavery based on ethnicity or color or caste, whether it's sexual exploitation, or whether it's through ones and zeros in a computer controlling our movements and freedoms. We are not meant to live under the tyranny of slavery. But we also know that Satan hates the image bearers of God, regardless of if they're saved or not, and will do everything he can to enslave and destroy them. We know that as Christians, we will have troubles and persecutions, and may be called even to suffer for Christ, but as Christians... We're promised freedom, if not in this life, in the next, an eternal life. As we watch those in power around the world plot and scheme to hold us in slavery to their will, as we battle for freedom on this earthly plane, remember that as Christians, we are literal children of God. And as such, no matter what battles we fight, no matter our wins and losses, we have an eternal freedom that can never be taken away. And in the craziness of this world... That's something that can bring us hope and peace. Well, we've come to one of the largest, most consequential amendments in our history. I would argue that at least some of the Bill of Rights are more important, as without some of those, this one would never have come into existence. Oh, wait a minute. Welcome back to the American Genesis. This is part 11 in our look at the amendments to the Constitution. Today, we're going to look at the 13th Amendment. As a recap from Part 10, after the Twelfth Amendment, the country ran as is for the next 62 years. To put that in perspective, that's about a quarter of this country's history if you go back to declaring independence. The Thirteenth Amendment was proposed on January 31st of 1865. Abraham Lincoln won re-election to the office of president as a Republican, and a Democrat, Andrew Johnson, won the vice presidency. Lincoln's convention, the National Union National Convention, chose Johnson, being a war democrat, to be Lincoln's running mate to try to bring unity between the North and the South. Lincoln was assassinated in April of 1865, the Civil War ended in May of 1865, and the 13th Amendment was ratified on December 6th of 1865. The amendment in question is, of course, the amendment to abolish slavery. It's a shame that Lincoln didn't live long enough to see all he had fought for come to at least some conclusion. So, In November of 1860, the American population went to the polls to vote. Now, I wasn't there, but I'm assuming that there weren't drop boxes, probably not a voting month rather than an election day. I don't think the Russians were involved, but how can we know for sure? There were four presidential, vice presidential tickets to choose from. Stephen Douglas of Illinois and Herschel Johnson, a former governor of Georgia, Democrats, won one state. Not Illinois, not Georgia. They won Missouri. John Bell of Tennessee and his running mate Edward Everett from Massachusetts, running as part of the Constitutional Union Party, won three states. Not Massachusetts. They won Tennessee, Kentucky, and Virginia. John Breckinridge of Kentucky and Joseph Lane of Indiana, representing a faction of the Democrat Party, termed the Southern Democratic Party, came in second winning the South, Texas, Louisiana, Arkansas, Mississippi, Alabama, Georgia, Florida, South Carolina, North Carolina, and then for some reason, Maryland and Delaware, but not Kentucky and not Indiana. And finally, we have Abraham Lincoln of Illinois and Hannibal Hamlin of Maine, the first candidates to represent the newly formed Republican Party. Well, they won the remaining states, California, Oregon, Minnesota, Iowa, Wisconsin, Illinois, Michigan, Indiana, Ohio, New York, New Jersey, Connecticut, Rhode Island, Pennsylvania, Massachusetts, Vermont, New Hampshire, and Maine. Now, backing up a bit more, in 1820, the Missouri Compromise was signed into law by President James Monroe. As states were being admitted to the union and the country grew, the division between those that were anti-slavery and those that were pro-slavery was growing and growing more tense. The Missouri Compromise was an attempt to find a middle ground that both sides would at least agree to, even if they didn't completely get their way. I mean, what are the odds that they were compromising and this law just happened to be named the Missouri Compromise? I mean, how lucky could you get? Anyway, this law admitted Missouri as a slave state and Maine as a free state, as well as banning slavery from the Louisiana Purchase lands north of the 36 degrees 30 minutes parallel, which is the southern border of Missouri. This was the law of the land until it was repealed by the Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854. Now, During this time, Arkansas, Florida, and Texas were admitted as slave states, while Michigan, Iowa, Wisconsin, and California were admitted as free states. The Kansas-Nebraska Act of 1854, just through another stroke of pure luck, was about the formation of both the Nebraska and Kansas territories. I mean, what are the odds here? The act essentially said that the slavery status of a state would no longer alternate as states were admitted. Rather, the status would be decided at the time of admission. Of course, Both sides were unhappy with this, as both sides feared that their side of the issue wouldn't be fairly represented moving forward. It turns out, between the Kansas-Nebraska Act and the 1860 election, California, Minnesota, and Oregon were all admitted as free states, with no counteracting slave states. This, of course, heightened the tension in the Southern Democratic-controlled, it's important to remember here, slave states. In 1857, the Supreme Court ruled in the Dred Scott case. Now, Dred Scott was a black slave born into slavery. He moved to a few different slave states with his owner. After his owner died, Scott was purchased again, moved to Illinois and then the Wisconsin Territory, both free regions, where Scott married another slave and her ownership was transferred to Scott's owner. Another few moves happened. A few times they were left in one state while their owner was in another and they were just hired out to someone else. Their owner, meanwhile, married, they all moved again, and then the owner suddenly died. Scott and his wife tried to purchase their freedom from the widow a number of times, but she refused. Finally, they sued for their freedom in 1846 while in St. Louis, citing wrongful enslavement and the Missouri statute that if a slave were to be taken to a free territory, they were immediately free and not able to be re-enslaved. In 1847, They lost their case on a technicality, but they were granted a retrial. In 1850, they won their freedom, but an appeal was filed. In 1852, the appeals court reversed the decision and did not grant them their freedom. Then Scott filed a federal lawsuit at this point, and in 1854, he lost that case. Scott then appealed his case to the Supreme Court. Now, over a year later, he was finally granted his trial in February of 1856, and a year later, in March of 1857, the Supreme Court ruled against Scott, denying him his freedom. Now, as fate would have it, the widow married a congressman who happened to be an abolitionist, and angry that she was the owner of this nationally high-profile slave couple, well, he sold them to the son of Scott's original owner. The son then granted them their freedom on May 26th of 1857. Now, the decision, the Dred Scott decision, in part, stated that those of African descent, regardless of if they were free or enslaved, were not citizens of the United States and thus not allowed to sue in federal court. It also stated that the Fifth Amendment protected slave owners because slaves were just legal property. The ruling went even farther, stating that the Missouri Compromise had no authority to enforce the alternating admission of states as slave or free, meaning that Congress was now neutered as to limiting or preventing the spread of slavery in the United States. The Chief Justice who wrote the opinion was Roger Taney, a Democrat from Maryland who was nominated by President Andrew Jackson, another Democrat and arguably one of the most vile presidents in our history, based on his upholding the principles of Manifest Destiny and signing the Indian Removal Act, which is most remembered for the Trail of Tears, which killed thousands of Native Americans, or Indians as I grew up calling them, as they were driven out of various states to the Oklahoma Territory and placed on reservations. Roger Taney was joined in this decision by James Moore Wayne, a Democrat, nominated by Jackson, John Catron, a Democrat, nominated by Jackson, Peter Vivian Daniel, a Democrat, nominated by Jackson, Samuel Nelson, a Democrat, nominated by President John Tyler, a Whig, that's the Conservative Party, Robert Cooper Grier, a Democrat, nominated by President James K. Polk, also a Democrat, and John Campbell a Democrat, nominated by President Franklin Pierce, a Democrat. Now, it was only opposed by two justices, John McLean, a Republican, nominated by Jackson, and Benjamin Curtis, a Republican, at least at that time, later to become a Democrat, nominated by President Millard Fillmore, a Whig. Notice that those that ruled Africans weren't citizens and that slaves were property Notice they were all Democrats. Does anyone else find that interesting? And the two dissenters were both Republicans? I mean, weird. So after the Dred Scott decision, Lincoln, who was vocal about being anti-slavery, was pulled back into the political arena. In 1858, he and Douglas had a series of debates across the country cleverly named the Lincoln-Douglas debates, with slavery being one of the main topics of debate. Fast forward to the election, Lincoln won and won handily, taking the majority of the electoral votes. So, even if the Democrats hadn't been divided, Lincoln still would have won. So, Lincoln won in November of 1860. By January of 1861, South Carolina, Mississippi, Florida, Alabama, Georgia, Louisiana, and Texas seceded from the United States. In March of 1861, Lincoln was actually inaugurated. And by April of 1861, the Civil War officially began. Now, over the next couple of years, the so-called radical Republicans called for Lincoln to enact a total abolition of slavery. Some Union generals were making their own rules that slaves that made it to the Union were free, those rebelling against the Confederacy were free, etc., etc. Congress was passing acts declaring the freedom of slaves. Well, finally, Lincoln navigating some waters that none of us would want to have to wade into, He issued the Emancipation Proclamation on January 1st, 1863. The proclamation opened with, quote, Whereas on the 22nd day of September, in the year of our Lord 1862, a proclamation was issued by the President of the United States containing, among other things, the following, to wit, That on the first day of January, in the year of our Lord, 1863, all persons held as slaves within any state or designated part of a state, the people whereof shall then be in rebellion against the United States, shall be then thenceforward and forever free. And the executive government of the United States, including the military and naval authority thereof, will recognize and maintain the freedom of such persons and will do no act or acts to repress such persons or any of them in any efforts that they may make for their actual freedom. So basically, Lincoln declared all slaves free as of January 1st, 1863. Between Lincoln's election and the proclamation, Kansas joined as a free state. In 1863, West Virginia split from Virginia, coming into the Union as a slave state, coming from the slave state of Virginia, with a plan to abolish slavery, and in 18 months, they were a free state. In 1864, Nevada was admitted as a free state. Now, in 1863 into 1864, various congressmen started proposing constitutional amendments that would outlaw slavery. Lincoln had made his proclamation under wartime powers, but the radical Republicans knew that they needed to codify the abolition of slavery into the framework of our country. I'm assuming it's similar to executive orders issued by a president today, where it's fine as long as you're president and as long as you hold enough power in the branches of Congress, but as soon as you're out... Uh, your orders are counter-ordered, and the pendulum just keeps swinging more and more wildly out of control. Representative James Mitchell Ashley of Ohio introduced a bill in December of 1863. James F. Wilson of Iowa pitched his bill right after that. January 11th of 1864, Senator John Henderson of Missouri submitted a joint resolution to abolish slavery constitutionally. This was followed by the Senate Judiciary Committee working on trying to merge these different proposals into an amendment proposal. Charles Sumner of Massachusetts wasn't satisfied with the progress and proposed an even more expansive amendment proposal in February of 1864, but it was rejected. Two days later, the Judiciary Committee submitted their consolidated amendment. On April 8, 1864, the Senate passed the amendment in a vote of 38 to 6, with two Democrats joining the vote to affirm. A few months later, it failed to garner two thirds of the House vote, missing by 13 votes. Republicans supported, Democrats rejected. Note that, take very careful notes of this Republicans were for abolishing slavery, the Democrats were opposed. And to that I say, some things never change. The next presidential election, well, that was looming. Lincoln endorsed this amendment, even though the Republicans had not placed an endorsement in their party platform, at least not as of yet. After Lincoln won re-election, he made the ratification of an amendment to abolish slavery his top legislative priority. Public support was growing for abolishment. Lincoln stated in his State of the Union address in December of 1864 that an amendment would pass and it would be sent to the states regardless of the lame duck session he was in, so he might as well just get on with passing it and sending it to the states already. Lincoln then purportedly instructed his Secretary of State and John Alley, a representative from Massachusetts, to get the votes by any means necessary, and any means apparently meant that the Democrats were promised posts and assignments, bribes were doled out to various reps, etc., etc. On January 31st, 1865, after personal appeals by Lincoln himself and all the groundwork that had been laid over the previous few months, the House called for a vote. With eight Democrats abstaining, every conservative member of the various parties and 14 Democrats crossing the aisle, the measure passed with a vote of 119 to 56. Those 56 dissenters, all Democrats. The next day, the amendment was sent to the states for ratification. Out of the 36 states, which counted those that had seceded also, 27 states would have to ratify the amendment for it to be adopted. By the end of February, 18 states had ratified. By mid-April, there were 21 states that had ratified. These were Illinois, Rhode Island, Michigan, Maryland, New York, Pennsylvania, West Virginia, Missouri, Maine, Kansas, Massachusetts, Virginia, Ohio, Indiana, Nevada, Louisiana, Minnesota, Wisconsin, Vermont, Tennessee, and Arkansas. Then on the night of April 14, 1865, President Abraham Lincoln made the fateful decision to go watch the play Our American Cousin in Ford's theater. At 10.15 p.m., John Wilkes Booth entered the president's box and shot Lincoln point-blank in the back of the head, mortally wounding him. Now, despite being the first president assassinated in U.S. history, the Ratification efforts continued on with Connecticut in May, New Hampshire in July, South Carolina in November, and finally Alabama, North Carolina, and Georgia all ratifying in December. The proposed amendment then became law. Now, also in December were Oregon, California, and Florida, Iowa and New Jersey ratified in 1866, Texas in 1870, Delaware in 1901, Kentucky in 1976, and Mississippi in 1995. And that, more than just about anything here, is simply shocking. Now, this, of course, was more of the beginning of the fight for equality. And despite what the Democrats tell us today, equality, it mostly has been achieved, as denoted by the electing of a black president. That's the largest highlight. But the reality is, for most Americans, we don't really care what your color is. For most Christians, there's no such thing as racism as we are all one race, the human one. Although the black community faces their own specific challenges in their own culture, we all have opportunity, we all have equal rights. The fight for freedom has been won. That said, as we have seen during the era of the Civil War, the Democrats of today are still trying to keep the black population on the plantation and firmly in check. This is why abortions are pushed on blacks more than others. This is why the black family was specifically targeted for destruction. This is why the Democrats think that blacks are too stupid to get an ID or use a computer or find their way to the polling place. Additionally, they're not able to talk properly, they're not able to do typical schoolwork or act civilized, they can't hold a job, they can't stop drinking their 40s or smoking their swishers, so they need to be given government money on top of government money. The Democrats still have the black population in chains, but these chains are cleverly disguised as compassion and empathy, manipulation, rage, money and entitlement but that's a story for a different time. So to end this segment of the American Genesis, let's read the relatively short text of the 13th Amendment and allow the gravity of what this amendment did, the wrongs it was correcting, the feelings of vindication as recognition of blacks as humans was codified into the very fabric, the foundation of our country. And with the conclusion of that, I'll say until next time. So, the 13th Amendment to the Constitution reads as follows. Section 1. Neither slavery nor involuntary servitude, except as a punishment for a crime whereof the party shall have been duly convicted, shall exist within the United States or any place subject to their jurisdiction. Section 2. Congress shall have power to enforce this article by appropriate legislation. Now, Let this sink in. Well, we've reached the end of another episode of the Logical Christian Podcast. Don't forget to like, subscribe, comment, review, share, and all that podcasty stuff. Contact information can be found in the show notes if you'd like to reach out to me. Lawrence J. Peter said, Against logic, there is no armor like ignorance. Jesus told us that if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples, and you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. So stay in the word, stay logical, stay faithful. And until next time, God bless. Well, I don't know what happened. I thought I was doing okay. only went to five guys one time for each one of those guys per day. Now I see Dr. Now looking through my windows. Okay, maybe not. So this is goal update for week number seven. You know how this works. So let's just go ahead and dive right in. Uh, Regarding my weight loss. So look, I lost four pounds last week. I mean, what do you expect from me? And if you said another four pounds, wow, would you be wrong? No, no, no. This week I dropped a mere 1.1 pounds. That's the lowest amount lost in a week so far in this journey. Now, that said, I made my sister's world famous, I'm assuming, chicken crescent squares, and had a hearty helping of that the day before. And I believe that that might have been, shall we say, sitting heavy at the weigh in. Time will tell. With that pitiful loss, a loss that not only has brought shame to me, but shame to my entire family, I've now lost 16.1 pounds in these seven weeks, averaging 2.3 pounds per week. That brings my weight to 198.3, ahead of my goal pace by 5.6 pounds. Once again, using my highly calibrated belt, it appears I'm nearly two inches down, maybe one and three quarter inches so far. And although that's nice... It also tells me that as an old, old man, apparently the extra weight is going to hang out in my middle now, at least more than it did in previous years. It never used to, not to that extent, but but here we are. Anyway, despite this being a low weight loss week, this goal, still a dark green. Moving to reading. Now, I already tried the, hey, look over there thing last week. I guess I'll just face the Muzak. This was not a good week. Now, I have legitimate reasons, and actually because of those reasons, I've made some moves that will free up a fair amount of hours per week, which will be nice, as I could really use that time back. So, because I just either couldn't or didn't find the time, only 17 pages last week. I know, don't yell at me. I can't take that right now. It's unfortunate because this is a really interesting book. I'll tell you about it if I ever finish it. Now, I'm still ahead of my goal ending February at 743 total pages, or 123.8% of the pace. Uh, However, I was at 180% of my pace at the end of January, uh, so you can see that if this trend continues in just a few more months, I'll have to start giving back pages that I've already read as my pace slides into negative territory. I've got to change this one to a light green, as it's still okay, but the trend, (laughs) ah, she's not so good. In contrast, I've been able to continue to close my office door around lunchtime and read in my daily Bible. I was at 130% of my pace last week, to finish this by the end of September, and this week I've improved that pace to 136.2%, so that's still a solid green. And daily devotions are seeing the same sort of progress. I was at 105% last week, and after seven days of reading my devotions last week, which, incidentally, is only the second time in seven weeks that I hit all seven days, I'm now at 109.2% of my goal pace. So, I guess you could say things in general are going pretty good. As always, improvements can be made. So, if you have any questions, comments, concerns other words that start with a hard C sound. Hey, just let me know. Bye.